Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The future of higher education and its makeup hangs in the balance as the Supreme Court prepares to rule on two landmark affirmative action cases. In essence, the court will be deciding whether race can be used as a consideration for college admission. The court has upheld this in the past, but last year, the conservative-leaning court went against 50 years of precedent and overturned the federal right to abortion. Fears that the same could happen with affirmative action has many advocates worried. They argue that diversity at institutions of higher learning will decline. Later this hour, we'll explore the status of affirmative action and ask, what's next? But first, the mass shooting at the Covenant School reignited conversations about school safety across the city. Last week, officials from Metro Nashville Public Schools and local police updated families on their security protocols. And tonight, there's a panel discussion at Hillsborough High School with organizations advocating to prevent gun violence. Here to talk us through the latest school safety news is WPLN education reporter Alexis Marshall. Alexis, thanks for being here. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. So Metro Council member Jeff Syracuse organized a series of three meetings centered on the issue of gun violence in response to the Covenant School shooting. But there's been months since that attack. Did anybody address why there was such a wait before holding these meetings? Yeah, that's a question that some people who attended the meeting had been questioning beforehand. And um, Councilmember Syracuse said that it was to give the community some time to grieve before coming together to discuss these issues and also some time to be thoughtful um, rather than reactive to the shooting. Um, and in fact, the council member who represents the district where the Covenant School is said that he appreciated having that time to to really reflect and think um, and, and mourn before coming in to a meeting where we're eventually going to be talking about action. Mm. Now, now, remind us, what's Jeff Syracuse's role in the council and why did he put this series together? So he's the chair of the Public Health and Safety Committee for the Metro Council. Um, and he says in the announcement of this meeting series that he wants the, the, the series to strengthen the community and also help folks find solutions to reduce gun violence, um, which he calls an epidemic. Um, each meeting is going to tackle this issue a little bit differently. Mm. So you were at the meeting with Metro Schools and Police last week. What did you learn there? A lot of what they went over was safety protocols that were already in place. And that includes several measures that were actually implemented after the school shooting last year in Uvalde, Texas. Um, after that attack where 19 students and two teachers were killed, MNPS announced plans to increase police presence at their schools to the highest levels ever. Mm. Um, that included a program that also stationed an armed police officer outside of elementary schools in a patrol car. Um, school officials also explained some of the physical security measures that are built into schools. Um, those are things like security cameras that can be monitored remotely by police. It also includes security vestibules where uh, visitors can be screened and kind of kept separate from the school community 
um, and also instant background checks that happen in the front office when you sign in. So all of those are things that were already in place um, before the Covenant school shooting. So what new security measures are they implementing after the Covenant school shooting? Um, So all 8,000 or so school-based employees for Metro schools are going to get special training with Metro Nashville police um, on how to respond to intruders during their in-service week before students go back to school in the fall. Um, And then one of the biggest updates is that the district and police are planning to have an assigned school resource officer at every middle and high school in the district. Um, Some of those positions had already existed, but there were vacancies. So the district and police say that they are working on recruitment so that they can fill those vacancies and make sure that those SRO positions are fully staffed by the fall. Um, MNPS also wants to continue having police stationed outside of elementary schools with what it calls safety ambassadors on the inside of those buildings. Um, And so those are district employees who receive special security training as well as like social emotional training, but they are not armed. Those are the folks who are inside the schools and then police are in uh, patrol cars outside of the schools, kind of a two-pronged approach, as the superintendent would say. Um, But that approach did reveal some differences of opinion among city leaders when it comes to school resource officers. Um, Like council member Courtney Johnston said that she wants to see armed SROs inside elementary school buildings. Mm, That's that's interesting. As I reflected, listen to what you just said. When I was an educator, we didn't have any SROs. And I I worked at a school for kids in Los Angeles who got kicked out of high school who had very strong ties to gang life. And we didn't have any of those officers. And it's, it's interesting to see where we're at these days. So, you know, tell me more about what Courtney was saying. Yeah, well, I guess it kind of revealed these differences of opinions among some city council members. And and it's a difference of opinion among like very many members of the community. Um, So research is mixed on whether school resource officers actually make schools safer. And a lot of the answer can depend on what people mean by safe. Um, So research suggests that SRO presence does appear to reduce the number of violent incidents on school grounds. Um, But the publication Education Week says that it's far from clear that SROs prevent school shootings. Um, And on the other hand, police officers in schools are associated with a higher number of student arrests. And that often disproportionately affects students of color, especially black students. Um, And that's something that council member Zulfat Suara um, kind of mentioned when she voiced her concerns about SROs during this meeting. Um, She said the students at her kids' school in North Nashville don't really have a favorable opinion on SROs and that many students are scared of having police in schools. Um, But on the other hand, a lieutenant from Metro PD who's in charge of SROs said that his officers are are different and that it's part of their agreement with Metro schools that they are not disciplinarians. They're not supposed to intervene with um, behavior issues and that their goal is supposed to be to form strong positive relationships with students. And he says he has the data to back that up. Um, Now, I've not seen that, but I imagine that many journalists, myself included, will be interested in requesting that data to see how Nashville SROs compared to their peers across the country. So, you know, making some of these changes can be expensive. And we're in the thick of budget season here in Nashville. Are all of the new security measures the district wants, are they included in the city's budget as it stands? So not all of them. And that's actually one other thing that came up during the meeting. 
Um, the district is still asking for the city to fund its safety ambassador program at elementary schools um, after federal funding runs out. And they're asking for the city to help install shatter-resistant protection on glass in school buildings across the district. As we saw during the Covenant school shooting, um, that, that glass can be shot through. And so um, the school district has estimated that it'll cost about $5 million to install protection to help make that glass more durable. Um, and at least one Metro Council member at that first meeting seemed confident that the council could get behind that. Now, tell us about the meeting happening tonight at Hillsborough High School. What can folks expect? That is going to be a moderated panel discussion with representatives from groups that advocate for gun violence prevention. That includes the group Moms Demand Action, as well as the Uvalde Foundation for Kids and the Aquila Da Silva Foundation, which was founded to honor a victim in the 2018 Waffle House shooting in Antioch. Um, community members have pre-submitted their questions and comments for this meeting. And in the announcement for it, Council Member Syracuse said that it's important for Nashville to learn from organizers and advocates from these types of groups as Nashville starts to, to organize and advocate for um, gun violence prevention itself. That meeting starts at 6 o'clock this evening at Hillsborough High School in the auditorium. And I think it should be a really interesting and informative conversation. Alexis Marshall is WPLN's education reporter. You can find the link to her story on this episode's web post at thisisnashville.org. Alexis, thanks for being here. And as always, thanks for your reporting. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll take a look at affirmative action, what it is and how it shapes college admissions. What do you think about affirmative action? Tweet us at thisisnashville. We'll be right back. Kaliole Colonna, and this is Nashville. Attending college is about more than just hitting the books. It's also about being in new environments and meeting new people. If campus is a diverse place, then there are more opportunities for students and staff to learn about perspectives other than their own. But studies show that diverse campuses don't just happen. And affirmative action has helped colleges and universities diversify their student bodies, in part by considering race when reviewing applicants. This has provided more opportunities for black and Hispanic students who've been historically underrepresented. But that practice may change. Soon, the Supreme Court is set to render its decision on two landmark cases. Joining me now to talk about what affirmative action is and how it impacts higher ed are Dr. Kelly E. Slay, Assistant Professor of Higher Education and Public Policy at Vanderbilt, and Matthew Shaw, Assistant Professor of Law, Public Policy, and Education at Vanderbilt. Kelly, Matthew, thank you for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Really great to have you. Excited for this conversation. So, you know, let's begin with the basics, because this can be a point of confusion for folks. Kelly, what is affirmative action in the context of higher education? Sure. So let me just first say that in 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson issued an executive order 
which prohibited the discrimination uh, based on race, gender, uh, religion in federal in organizations that had federal contracts. Um, and then later um, focused on affirmative action, promoting opportunities uh, for women and for racial minorities. We later see uh, that colleges and universities across the country also began to use affirmative action as a way initially to remedy a longstanding history of racial discrimination, which prohibited um, black students in particular at that time from being able to access institutions of higher education. Um, since then, affirmative action has uh, expanded uh, and has shifted, I should say, as a policy not necessarily meant to address racial discrimination or remedy uh, a history of racial discrimination, but more so to promote diversity. Mm. Uh, some, some people think, opponents, they claim that it's a quota system. Is that true? No, it's not true. And I'm sure Matthew is ready to jump in here uh, as the legal <laughs> scholar. Uh, racial quotas are illegal, mm -hmm. uh, and they were made illegal in the first case to challenge affirmative action, which is the Bakke case in 1978 with Bakke, uh, a University of California medical school applicant uh, who um, challenged the admissions process. And so racial quotas are not illegal. I mean, are are illegal. They are not legal. <laughs> Let me be clear about that. Okay, Matthew. Yeah. So what Professor Slay was saying earlier was that uh, affirmative action shifted from being a remedial um, a remedial project focusing on undoing the effects of systemic, long-standing racial discrimination into diversity, and that actually happened through the Bakke case, so the Regents of the University of California versus Bakke in 1978. And diversity was effectively the last justification standing. So there were a number of justifications that were brought in 1978, whether it were, you know, increasing the number of minoritized doctors, increasing the number of uh, minoritized people who were able to access medical school, and then generally remedying past discrimination. And those were all found to be... Um, unjustified with respect to the University of California Davis Medical School. But UC Davis Medical School was a special case. It was a relatively new school and a very long-standing system. It does matter that in 1978 these cases weren't brought against your older universities like Harvard, which is now um, at the center of one, at the University of North Carolina, which is at the center of the other one. I must admit to having graduated from both. Mm -hmm. um, so nobody is paying me to say anything. <laughs> um, and I'm not conflicted in saying that both of those institutions would have had different, um, and they have expressed different justifications for affirmative action than UC Davis was ever able to mount. And so diversity was the only thing left standing. It was a pet project of then Justice Lewis Powell, who said, wouldn't it be great to borrow, not ironically from a brief that Harvard submitted in a 1974 case, um, if the children of Boston Brahmin and Idaho farm boys could go to school together. And he recaptured and he reconceived of affirmative action as in the academic pursuit of diversity, which is why we're talking about it now. Mm. Now, you know, currently race can be used as one factor in college admissions. You know, Kelly, what are some of the other factors that school use when deciding on who they accept? So I think in order to answer that question, I want to provide some context here. Um, and that is that 
When we talk about affirmative action, we're actually talking about a very small group of institutions, so the most selective colleges and universities. And the reason why is because they have a limited number of slots or spaces, I should say, in their in their class. So um, and we're talking about schools like Harvard, like Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt, uh, the University of Michigan um, is a selective institution, my alma mater, UNC Chapel Hill. So our most selective colleges and universities where they might have seven thousand and slots or spaces available uh, in their freshman class and may receive over 70,000 applications, for example. And so what affirmative action does uh, is it allows colleges and universities to use race as one of many factors um, in uh, considering and um, deliberating on whether or not a student should be admitted. Uh, But ultimately, the decision on whether to admit a student uh, is... um, contingent upon a number of of factors, including the institutional mission and priorities of the institution, um, as well as, uh, you know, students' likelihood of being successful and what they can contribute to the class. And so colleges often look at standardized test scores, although that has changed recently uh, with the expansion of test optional policies. Mm -hmm. They also look at grades, um, whether or not a student has taken uh, a uh, college-ready curriculum, math, science, English, other courses, extracurricular activities, uh, and other parts of their story that can help the admissions professionals who are reviewing their application to understand what might they bring to the university, what might they bring to the class uh, if they were to be admitted. So what's the argument for removing race from the equation? Matthew? They're two different arguments. So what Kelly was talking about earlier, and to answer part of an earlier question that you asked, is race can be used, but it can't be used in a mechanical sense. Mm-hmm. Right. It can be used only in a holistic sense. And so for the break list, that down, for uh, you know, I was going to. OK, so <laughs> it means that we can't ascribe a value to race. We can't say race is either um, a plus or a minus factor. We can't assign points to it. We can't say that we're going to give a person a boost because of race. Mm-hmm. But in a holistic sense, we can say we can consider the race of an applicant as part of their whole package, their entire story. And so there are two different cases. The Harvard case is actually looking at. Um, it, it is presuming that the use of race by Harvard College was mechanical. And it is saying, um, does this violate Title VI? So the earlier case, um, Gratz versus Bollinger, which is the less famous case now from 2003, an affirmative action, actually said that um, the University of Michigan's uh, um, assignment of points in an undergraduate admissions um, process violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which only applies to states, um, it, and the Fifth Amendment Equal Protection Doctrine, which is an entire conversation to have separately, would apply to the federal government, and Title VI. But it was all, but the conversation was never clarified as to whether Title VI, which private institutions that receive federal funding are bound by, whether Title VI actually forbids the mechanical use of race for them as well. And so that's what the Harvard College case is about. It's about Title VI. It is about what the court has tried to construe as a mechanical use of race by um, a combination of interviews or other um, demographic data that Harvard College has taken that might let a person know what the race of an applicant would be. Okay. The UNC case is different. So the UNC case is reviewing Grutter versus Bollinger, the more famous one, which was reviewed again in Fisher versus Texas in both 2013 and 2016. And that question is whether um, the use of race 
well, on paper. The question is whether the University of North Carolina has sufficiently justified its use of race in admissions to satisfy this prong called narrow tailoring. So um, I know I'm walking through a lot, and I apologize to your listeners, but if they hold on, if they keep up with me. I, I, think, they're, I okay, think they're holding on. If you will hold on with me. Um, there are three things that have to be satisfied under the Equal Protection Clause in order to use race. So race, um, any governmental use of race is reviewed under what is called strict scrutiny. All right. So I like to teach it in this way. Um, is there a compelling governmental interest to use race? So that was debated again in 2013 and the 2016 case in Fisher opened with a very clear statement by Justice Kennedy that um, diversity is a compelling governmental interest. So that first of the three prongs that I'm talking about has been satisfied ostensibly. The second, is it necessary? And so necessity is, um, we've, we think about it is, are there any other ways that we could accomplish um, a racially diverse class? without actually using race itself. Mm -hmm. And so that's a question that's lurking in the background here. Um, but the final one, which is bringing back Gruder into the UNC case, is is it narrowly tailored? So presume that the interest remains compelling. Um, say even that it might be necessary. Have you only used race to the extent that you must? Um, because if you've used it too much, then that's unconstitutional. Um, so um, that's where the question is, officially presented, but the entire conversation is on the table. Now, Kelly? If I, if I could, I just want to amplify something that, that Matthew said, and it's about how we use race. I think that there are some misconceptions when we talk about race-conscious affirmative action, that mm -hmm. there is some kind of a point system or there's a checkoff box or that it's being used in a mechanical way. But I want to just... Um, elaborate on the fact that when colleges and universities are using race in the admissions process, one, it's, you know, with a number of other factors, uh, some of which I've already outlined. Um, but two, they use it because they want to be able to contextualize an applicant. So what being able to use race as one of many considerations allows an institution to do is it allows them to think about, uh, for example, one of my mentors who was a Latino male uh, in Chicago uh, was a 4.0 student, but because of his familial uh, obligations, helping uh, with his family, his parents, who um, English was a uh, second language, he wasn't able to participate in as many extracurricular activities. Um, and so understanding that allowed the institution to put into context mm -hmm. his application in a way um, that allows them to, to make a uh, better assessment of this applicant and what they could potentially bring. So it's the socioeconomic backgrounds as well as the academic background that each student comes with that these that the schools are considering and using to weigh their decisions of whether to admit them or not. It's it's a, all of that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't definitely socioeconomic background is a part of it, but the racial aspect and the ways in which race is experienced differently by different. Uh, excuse me, social classes experienced differently by different racial and ethnic groups. Now, you went to the University of Michigan. Yes. Where this kind of blew up in a major way. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah. So that's actually how I uh, 
one of the reasons why I've been interested in uh, studying affirmative action. So I was a student at the University of Michigan in 2003 during those two important cases, which Matthew has already uh, outlined. Uh, I was a student in 2006 when uh, voters across the state uh, decided to ban affirmative action and was put on the ballot. Um, and what I noticed uh, in 2013 when I returned to Michigan after being in Chicago for four years was a very notable decline in diversity. Um, so racial diversity, uh, and I'm thinking particularly about black student enrollment, uh, decreased by 50%. Uh, in fact, I could go on campus and I could count on one hand the number of black students that I would see in a day. So it was a very remarkable difference. Uh, and that is one of the reasons why I've been interested in understanding what happens when we ban affirmative action. Not only how do students experience the environment, but also what are the policies and practices that institutions uh, implement in order to mitigate some of those losses. Now, Matthew, you said you went to both Harvard and University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I did. One's a public institution, one is a private institution. Yes. What's the difference when well, it comes to those two and how we apply affirmative action? Well, of course, um, the public institution is subject to both the statutory, that's Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and the constitutional um, Equal Protection Clause, um, where the private institution, if they accept federal funds, is subject to Title VI. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's the only difference, and that has been part of the conversation that has been left unaddressed. This is the first time that the court is considering whether a private institution can accept that as a condition of receiving federal funds. That can't be lost. Um, it also can't be lost that Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson is not participating in the Harvard case because she recused herself, having um, previously served on the governing board of Harvard. Um, so, it, I mean, on the ground, I will say having attended both places— they're both diverse in many ways. They're not necessarily as racially diverse as one might want. But then here's actually exposing the hidden conversation. We're not just talking about diversity. And I think when you asked the question about socioeconomic status and other things, I was really happy to hear my colleagues say, well, but there's a racial component to all of this that is separate and apart from SES, that is separate and apart from class, is separate and apart from education, from all of these things. Race is a factor in American life, and it is unavoidable. Um, we are also having a conversation in Tennessee about that. It is unavoidable. And I think part of the reason we're having this conversation is because everyone knows this. And some people are trying to um, activate and try to avoid the expanse of that conversation. And so that's what's really at stake here. Do we want to have, for example, at the University of North Carolina, can the University of North Carolina honor its equal protection obligation to all of its citizens and all the people who apply by considering race among all of the other factors that the University of North Carolina considers, right? Um, one of the most beautiful things that Justice Jackson asked because she was able to participate in the UNC case was about legacy. Yeah. And so she, what she did in the oral argument and asking the question, she reframed the question about heritage and, and, and legacy and family. So certain people, certain groups of people at the University of North Carolina have been multi-generational Tar Heels. Mm -hmm. um, and it is the oldest state university in operation, which should not go missed here either. Mm -hmm. So you have people who, um, you know, the university also went through a large and is still undergoing a, a healing process around the number of white insurrectionists 
who have lynched and have participated in mob behavior and have removed whole governments from Wilmington, North Carolina, who beat people on that campus, right, in renaming and reclaiming and having that conversation. So all of this is part of the story of University of North Carolina. There are people who won't, they won't apply to University of North Carolina because of its history, and there are other people who apply who don't think they have a good chance. Um, so all of this is part of what Justice Jackson was asking. She was like, well, if a person who has a multi-generational background of people who've been able to attend the University of North Carolina can say that, and we know that that is linked largely to race and slavery at that, mm-hmm. why can't a person who does not have that same background, who has been, who has the same length, if not longer generational ties to the state of North Carolina do the same because they're black, right? Even things that we think aren't racialized, like checking a box that says legacy, which is important and influential in admissions decisions, is racialized. That's what we're having a conversation about. So, so why do race-conscious efforts, why do they matter when it comes to pursuing diversity on campus? I'd love to hear from both of you. What we have amassed over the past 20 some odd years since um, the implementation of the California ban on affirmative action, uh, Proposition 209, which was passed in 1996 and implemented in 1998, um, it's a considerable amount of research that tells us that the most effective way to uh, create a racially diverse class is through the use of race as one of many considerations in the admissions process. And that's important because as the courts have established, diversity is a compelling interest. And colleges and universities, um, by having a diverse class of students, there are benefits that accrue to those individual students um, in, in terms of their outcomes, in terms of their satisfaction, their, their completion. But there are also benefits that we realize. So the organizations that these students are a part of, uh, that we realize as a society, because we have been exposed to people who have different racial and ethnic backgrounds, who have different perspectives, different worldviews, um, we are in an increasingly global society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the reasons why we had a historic number of corporate organizations, corporations who sign amicus briefs in support of race conscious affirmative action in these two cases is because of the the benefits uh, of diversity that um, are uh, at the individual, organizational, organizational, and also the societal level. So it's really important. Um, but as Matthew said, it's not the only thing that that we're thinking about uh, and that is on the table here. So I'm, I'm trying to think, I don't want to project too far into the future, but Matthew, what might institutions do if this ruling, if with this ruling, if race is not allowed for consideration? I think the states and the private universities will have different obligations. So I am well beyond the diversity um, justification of affirmative action. I think of this as an obligation. I think of this as a constitutional obligation that the states and public universities are required to uphold and a statutory obligation that all recipients of federal education funds are required to uphold. I think we need to revisit K-12 education. And I say from, I mean, from birth all the way, the entire life course of education. Um, There are schools that there are school schools that are majority black or Latinx are underserviced. They're underfunded. 
They're undersupported. They're likelier to be savaged by charter schools that also do the same. Um, then you have black students within schools that aren't majority black who are more likely to be underserved, less likely to be identified as gifted and academically talented and, and given exposure to those programs. Then you could say the same about the black teacher core um, that are less likely to have select um, employment options. And with a series of effects, we have colleagues who have written about the effect of having at least one black teacher for a black student. We have play, we have students who still don't have that. Um there's still a conversation which we have not gone into about the effects of all of this on historically black colleges and universities. We have Tennessee State right here in Nashville. There's a, um, lot. There, there's a lot we got to get to. There's a lot we got to get to. But 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 the reason I think this is important to include in this conversation is because that's where the obligation is. Mm-hmm. If they can't, if, if we are not allowed to handle this at the college admissions place, we have to handle this in the K-12 education space. All right. I want to thank you both for being on the show. Thank you for your for your for your words and for this legal lesson. I really appreciate that. My guests were Dr. Kelly Ishe, an assistant professor of higher Slay, pardon me, assistant professor of higher education at public policy. And Matthew Shaw is an assistant professor of law, public policy and education. Both are with Vanderbilt University. Again, thanks to you both for being here and helping us understand. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll explore what a reversal of affirmative action could mean for students who have hopes of attending college. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Kalona, and this is Nashville. We're talking this hour about affirmative action and how a Supreme Court ruling could change whether schools can consider race when reviewing applications. Now, applying to college is a big step. It's not an easy process. When I applied to college, I had my parents, two older siblings who were in college themselves, and a guidance counselor to help me. Some students don't have those resources. So what is it like to apply for college today? For that student perspective, I'd like to introduce my next guest. Catherine Gomez is an incoming freshman at Fisk University who went through the college admission process with the help from Persist Nashville. Catherine, thanks for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me today. Really excited to have you. So, you know, walk me through your college application process. What was it like for you? Okay, so in total, I applied to a total of 10 schools, um, majority being in-state schools, some schools in Virginia and um, a school in Atlanta. Um, I'm not going to lie. It was it was rough. It was a little rough through it all. Um, but I was blessed enough to have a really good college counselor um, at my high school. And um, with with her guidance and through... Um, through my peers and like my teachers, they've all helped me um, throughout the whole application process. Um, but the most stressful part was um, definitely filing FAFSA as because mm-hmm. um, I like to mention I'm a first generation uh, college student. So no, like my parents, they didn't know how how to help me with that or or like how to file the FAFSA with me. So I was pretty much on my own for most of it. But um but I, I had to self-advocate for myself and um, 
get the guidance from like my college counselor and like also like reach out to like to schools and do a lot of things like on my own. Um, one of the like I tried having a plan for myself throughout my whole senior year. And one of those part of my plan was like having a meeting with my college counselor. I literally went up to her. I'm like, hey, I feel so behind. I have no clue what I'm doing. Um, but I really want to go to college. Mm. And she she was like, okay, Kevin, you are not behind. You are in the you're um stepping in the right direction and let's just create a plan. So I created a plan for myself, set personal deadlines when I want to have my essay done, um, have a good assortment of schools. I want to ask you about your essay real quick. Mm -hmm. That's a major stress point for a lot of students. What did you want to convey in your essay? Um, I wanted these schools, I wanted all the schools to know that I'm a very outspoken person <laughs> and my family can attest to this, that, um, that I would, I would, I would just say it how it is. I, 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 I can like, like I back talk and I speak my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, so in my essay, I wanted to, to show, um, the, a gener generational trauma that, that lives um, within like immigrant households. So in my essay, I talked about um, mental health within my within my own like community. So being like my family and um, what I did to um, start like the first steps to destigmatizing mental health because I'm like I'm an incoming freshman at Fisk University majoring in psychology on the pre-med track. So mental health is something that I'm really passionate about. So in my essay, like that's what I really wanted to to discuss that I'm really passionate about like mental health and like destigmatizing mental health within black and brown communities. Mm. Now I'd like to introduce my next guests. Nicole Davari is Director of Community Engagement and DEI at Persist Nashville. And Dr. Eric Stokes is the Assistant Vice Provost at the University of Memphis. Thanks to you both for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Hola, hola, thank you. Wonderful. Thanks thank, for having me. Thank you both for being here. Now, Nicole, how does Catherine's story compare to the other students you work with? You know, I, it's, I want to say that, you know, of course, like Catherine is beautiful and unique and wonderful. And also, unfortunately, it's not um, unheard of, right? Mm -hmm. This this process of, um, I'm the former director of YMCA Latino Achievers is actually how I've known Catherine since ninth grade. And oh, wow. yeah, okay. and so um, being able to see this whole process for not only her, um, she is a twin, Macy as well, and being able to um, see this story time and time again of students that maybe um, come from mixed status families. So um, where a student may be um, a U.S. citizen, but there's um, undocumented parents. And so um, working with first generation college students of, of all races and of, of all backgrounds. So tell me, what are some of the primary goals of Persist Nashville? Absolutely. So um, we all need community. We all need at least one person. And so Persist Nashville, um, so I worked in, as I said, Latino Achievers was college access, whereas Persist Nashville is college persistence. So our timeline with students really begins their um, spring semester of their senior year. And so we know right now only 27% of MNPS grads are actually earning a college degree. 
Only 20 Seven percent, you said. That's correct. Yeah, and so, um, and that's not always because of many students attending and dropping out. It's it's actually just with well intentions, but then students along the way. We have this term in in this field called summer melt, and so often our students don't make it through that summer between their senior year and actually enrolling in school because life happens, and a lot of the um, supports in place for high school students. They they're on to the next class, and so Persist Nashville is um, a coaching with our, the core of what we do is being coaches to uh, students and being able to support them through that process of getting through the summer, getting to orientation, but not just um, the. I always say it's conversations from how do I register for classes to, oh, I'm on a predominantly white campus and I do not know how to navigate this space. So mm. there's a wide variety of coaching conversations that our team has. All right. Now, now, Dr. Stokes, you work with, you work on strategic enrollment services at the University of Memphis. Tell me, why do you take, Correct. why do you take race into consideration when assembling a student body? Yeah, so colleges use race as one factor among many, as, as many of your other panelists have said. And we use it in a way to help build a diverse class of scholars, because these are the scholars that are going to be in the classroom. They're going to be involved on campus and ultimately go into the workforce. And just as we want a diverse boardroom or a diverse uh, factory, uh, you know, we want diversity amongst the campus and we're preparing those leaders. And so we've got to build that class at the beginning, at the at the admissions uh, point of admissions, so they can go off and thrive. And you know, despite all the efforts and the policies that have been in place, you know, there's still, uh, you know, it's still tough to overcome the systemic inequities that have been uh, in, in place and still are today. And so we have to use um, race narrowly tailored at points to continue to overcome those inequities and to still try to achieve a critical mass for many colleges uh, across America today. And so, you know, race is, is used in a limited view, but it's still necessary for college admissions today. Okay, so race is a limited view. What other, two things for you, you know, what other factors do you consider and then why does diversity matter on college campuses? Yeah, so we consider many factors in the college admissions process, both cognitive and non-cognitive. Of course, the cognitive factors are your GPA, your test score, the classes you take, the rigor of those. And then the non-cognitive things also inform uh, a student's uh, predictability of success, such as their background, their income, their race, their gender, the major they want to go into, the legacy status, as other, uh, as our other uh, Dr. Shaw has mentioned before, so all of these factors really come into play. And depends on the, the institution's mission. It depends on their goals and their strategic goals of how they'll use those different factors to help build a class. Now, and to your other question of yes, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, please. Well, about why diversity matters. Uh, again, just tried to talk about in today's global society. Many students go grow up in communities, go to elementary school through high school with students who look like them, who talk like them, think like them. And college for many of those students is the first time that they get to meet people from across the globe, across America. And this is the training ground, not just for workforce 
uh, skills, but also for uh, cultural competence and to be a good American, a good a citizen of this global society. And so it's very important for them to meet people of different races and incomes and ages and all types of various backgrounds. Now, Nicole, I want to go back to something you said. 27% of students from Metro Nashville public schools aren't going to college. Correction. 27% are earning are, a are only, only, uh, only, only 27%, only 27% mm-hmm. are. I'm sorry. Thank you for that correction. Yeah. What does that tell you about Metro mm-hmm. schools and the job it's doing preparing students for college, if yeah. that's the path for them? Yeah. So let me name. I'm a former MMPS teacher. Okay. <laughs> so they, I want to make sure that it's so clear. I don't believe that this is the only burden on a classroom teacher. I do believe that this takes our community. That said, currently, high school principals are not held accountable to um, what happens to students after high school. So graduation rates are important. Attendance rates are important. But um, there's nothing that is a part of the measure of a school's um, success um, that has anything to do with post-secondary attainment. Um, So... I think what that means right now, we have the New Skills Ready Project um, that has been supporting uh, just a few schools with college ready, college and career readiness coaches that are in the schools, but it's very few and actually it's grant funded. Mm. So they're in year of beginning. We just came from the meeting this morning, year, uh, year four of a five year grant. So after that's done, it's very, we're, we're not sure. Um, so what I am seeing in MMPS is that guidance counselors, which we know they have this ridiculous rate. If you don't know, it's like something like 300 to one. um, Yeah. Students for guidance counselors and guidance counselors were never meant to be um, college uh, access coaches, right? They were um, social emotional needs. They balance so much with such large caseloads. So what is my takeaway is that MMPS really needs to prioritize having college readiness coaches or college prep courses um, that are going to be able to prep students. Um, and that's just not a priority right now in our schools. Now, Catherine, you mentioned that you applied to 10 schools mm-hmm. and you, you, your, your decision, excuse me, came down to Lipscomb and Fisk. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you chose Fisk. <laughs> Why? Um. So initially, Lipscomb was the dream. It was the goal. I fell in love with campus, fell in love with the people there, um, and just the overall environment. And it's funny because Fisk is right across from my high school. So I graduated from Martin Luther King Jr. Academic Magnet High School. Um, and I always told myself, I'm not going to go to that college across the street. <laughs> like, it's not. It's going to feel like I'm in high school again. Um, but when it came down to it, um, financial aid played an important role. Um, so when it came down to comparing financial aid packages, um, Fisk offered me more um, financial aid. And the more, um, like Fisk was not the only HBCU that I applied. I also applied to Tennessee State University and Spelman College. Um, but um, Fisk, um, the more I did my research around the school, and I knew I knew some of the history that the school carried, um, and, you know, just watching like YouTube videos and stuff, hmm. um, I started envisioning myself at the school and I just started falling in love with like the culture around HBCUs. And there's just something like so special that HBU, HBCUs have that some like that made some PWIs don't have. So, um, 
And also because of um, networking that um, if you go to an HBCU, like, for example, let's say you go to an airport and you're like repping your HBCU and you'll more than likely find someone that's there. And it's like, hey, you went to like so and so like college. Right. Um, So I feel like that HBCUs have such a strong network. Mm. So I feel like for my future career and like networking with other professionals will be so important for me. So, yeah, that's pretty much how, like what came down to it. You, know, you, you said you like to plan. You, you're not lying. You have it all mapped <laughs> out. <laughs> that's the truth. Now, now, Dr. Stokes, you know, we talked about this on the previous segment. The Supreme Court is set to render a decision on affirmative action. Real quick, we have just over a minute left. How are you and the University of Memphis preparing for their decision? Well, of course, we're going to comply with the decision, with the law. Uh, but it also is a good time for us here at the University of Memphis because we recently launched our strategic plan that focuses on access, opportunities, outcomes for students. And so with that process, we've already been reviewing and we'll continue to review our own institutional practices and policies to help make sure that they ensure uh, are effectively addressing our mission and our vision. And as it respects to the consideration of race with the impending decision, we want to make sure that it's used in a limited way that is necessary for our business need. Uh, and so that's what we're doing here at the University of Memphis. But like many uh, other R1 universities, we employ a holistic review admissions process. And so that's where the court's decision will most likely have the most impact within the admissions process. And as I've already mentioned, we look at a number of characteristics. So we'll again, we'll, of course, comply with the law. And we'll adapt and and persevere through that to continue to achieve our our goals. All right. Well, I want to we have to end it here. I want to thank all of my guests for coming on to the show. I want to thank Catherine Gomez, future freshman at Fisk University, Nicole Davari with Persist Nashville, and Dr. Eric Stokes, assistant vice provost at the University of Memphis. Thanks to you all for being here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Radio. Today's episode was produced by Magnolia McKay. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutto. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Ginny Popo Walker. Pupo Walker, pardon me. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation does not end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Kaliole Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.